What a twist of providence this is um, to be meeting in the church like this. This is new for me. Uh, my name is Joe Congdon. I'm a missionary supported by Grace Church. My family and I have been in Japan for about five years, and I'm in the um, sanctuary this morning with Pastor Kyle and with my family, and um, we're still committed to God's Word, to worshiping Him. So we pray that this um, service, this message is still an encouragement to you uh, wherever you are listening to this um, this morning. And I'm um, here with my family, and um, you know, our family loves to... Um, our kids especially love to hear certain stories from me and my wife. They always ask us to hear um, certain stories from when we were little. Um, you know, they love to hear the story of how I forgot to sleep as a four-year-old on Christmas Eve. They love to hear about uh, my wife and how she took two hours one time eating a Girl Scout cookie, slowly savoring each little bit. And our kids laugh and laugh when they hear these stories. And, and, and what I've noticed is that they hear these stories and they start to behave like us. Um, and what I've learned from this phenomenon is that the stories we tell, the stories we hear over and over again, they have power to give shape to our lives in a certain kind of way. And the story that we're going to read this morning is one of those stories that we need to hear as a church. It's a historical narrative that is meant to shape us. It's a hard story, a gruesome and brutal story. It's one that if this scene were made into a movie, we would think twice about letting our kids watch it. It's a story of Joseph, a 17-year-old boy who is abused by his older brothers and then sold into slavery. It's a hard story, but one that is important to tell because of the truth that it teaches us about who God is and how he's working in our lives today. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to walk through the passage verse by verse in a moment, but I want to begin with the end. Because knowing the end of the story, knowing that there is a good ending, gives us hope in the midst of struggle. So here's the end of the story. Many, many years later, Joseph meets his brothers again those who had took advantage of them, Joseph is able to reconcile with them and to forgive them. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless your name this morning, together with all creation and the heavenly host. We praise you for your power and your sovereignty and your might. We confess that we struggle with anxiety and worry and stress about this virus, about the mayhem going on all over the world. We have anxiety about the hurt in our lives, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning the ways your love and providence never stop, no matter the circumstances of our lives. Give us hope this morning, we pray, as your people, in Jesus' name, amen. Felicity and I, uh, last weekend, we, we watched the Tom Hanks in the recent movie uh, about Mr. Rogers called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And we really love the movie for a number of reasons, one of which is that, from, from what I understand, it's a very realistic, intimate look at the real personality and character of Fred Rogers, who in so many ways reflected Christ to a hurting world. 
And the movie opens up with a scene where Mr. Rogers introduces us to the main protagonist of the story. He's a writer for Esquire magazine. His name is Lloyd Vogel. And he introduces us to Lloyd in scene one as a man who has been hurt, a man who has suffered much in life as the camera slowly zooms in on his face. And as the movie zooms in on his life, we see Mr. Rogers do an incredible work in Lloyd's heart, in Lloyd's life. He brings answers, perspective, love, and connection to him in his suffering. And what I really loved about this film is that as we watched Mr. Rogers' work in Lloyd's life, the movie draws us in and we find that Fred Rogers begins to work on our hearts too as viewers. It's very powerful as any good story is. And I believe that this is what Moses is doing for the people of God in the narrative of Joseph. Remember, the original audience of this story was God's people, the Israelites, wandering in the wilderness, waiting to enter into the promised land, wondering what was in store for them, reeling from the pain that they had just experienced in Egypt, living as slaves. And the Lord ministers to them, and he ministers to us through this story. Some of you have been hurt in unspeakable ways. Some of you know that you have hurt others, and that comes with its own pain guilt and suffering too. And so the big question that this passage begs is how can we trust a God who allows for so much suffering? So let's continue the story that Kyle started for us last week, beginning in verse 12. Genesis chapter 37, starting with verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So right at the onset, this story begins with some really curious details. Knowing of his brother's hatred for Joseph, remember they were jealous of him because their father loved him most. Joseph had had these incredible dreams that foresaw the rest of the family bowing down to him. Why in the world would their father Jacob send Joseph alone to go check on his brothers? And why are the brothers so far away? Shechem was not only 50 miles from Hebron, it would have been a very precarious place for them to take their flock. Remember, this was the place where their sister Dinah had been violated and where they later took revenge on all the men of the city. Why, of all places, would they go there with their sheep? It seems almost careless of Jacob to send Joseph on such a mission. But Joseph very faithfully goes out to his brothers without any hesitancy. And in verse 14, Jacob tells Joseph to see if it is well with the brothers. In Hebrew, this sentence just jumps off the page because the word that Jacob uses is shalom. He sends out Joseph to inquire about and to pursue their shalom. And this is where many of the 
the miraculous coincidences in the story begin. Joseph, he doesn't find his brothers at Shechem and is just wandering about when he meets a man who just happened to hear that is here overhear the brothers discussing where they would go they <clears throat> that they would go on to Dothan, which is about fifteen more miles north. If they had never moved to Dothan, the brothers never would have been near the road where the merchants traveling down to Egypt were, those who eventually took Joseph down into slavery into Egypt. You I mean we see here that there are no accidents in God's story. The story is told in a very careful, intentional way to show us that the Lord has set the stage for what is about to take place. And if we're going to be good students of the Bible, we have to see that all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is part of God's story. And the details that we read about in the history of salvation in the Old Testament create certain patterns, certain types for us that are visited later on in the story. And we see this in a huge way in the life of Joseph. The Lord is working in a very controlled way in his life and his suffering. And he writes Joseph's story intentionally to create and to show us these patterns that will tune our hearts to better see his hand at work. For example, in the life of Christ, uh, who in a very similar way would take a very dangerous trip away from the safety of his father to go and to pursue the shalom of his brothers, his brothers who had every intent to do him harm. And so let us be careful to look for these patterns in the rest of the story. There are no accidents here, and there are no accidents in our lives either. Recognizing God's control over even Jacob's foolishness, his carelessness, seeing God's control over guiding Joseph to his brothers shows the Lord's intentionality to govern and to guide his people at all times. And the same is true for all of our lives and circumstances today. The coronavirus has not caught God off guard. He is neither surprised nor shocked when we make foolish decisions about our own lives. And we can trust God's providence because we know that he is always, at every point in history, in control of all things. But just because he is in control, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't experience suffering. So let's read on, starting um, again in verse 18. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Joseph, walking toward his brothers in Dothan, wearing that special coat, a special coat from his father, it must have been like waving a red flag in front of an angry bull. The brothers, they mockingly refer to Joseph as this dreamer, and their first thought is to murder him. 
And we don't know exactly why, but Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, the one who should have received this robe, marking the love of the father, he speaks up in Joseph's defense. Perhaps he was trying to um, eventually earn his way back into the good graces of his father after sleeping with Bilhah, who was like an aunt to him, shaming, bringing shame on Jacob's family. We don't know why, but he ends up persuading the brothers against outright murder. But they still move forward with incredible abuse. They strip him of his robe, this symbol of Jacob's love and affection, and they throw him into this empty cistern, which was a, a big, empty, dry, unescapable well. See, Moses doesn't shy away from the brutal details in the story, even knowing that this would certainly impact the way that the, the very tribes that Moses is leading at the time when he wrote down this account, he knew that it would impact them. The Bible isn't scared to talk about the very worst kinds of abuse and suffering. See, our pain isn't too much for God, and our pain isn't ever wasted. Did you notice that through this whole account, Joseph, he doesn't utter a single word. Earlier in the narrative, earlier in the chapter, we can't get him to shut his mouth. He speaks too much to his own detriment, but here, just like Christ, 1,800 years later, he receives his abuse at the hands of his brothers in silence. Just as Isaiah predicted in chapter 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Again, we see types and shadows here being formed in Joseph's story that will later be fulfilled in Christ. The pattern is one of the rescuer. Before he rescues, first suffering at the hands of those he was sent to redeem. And we get these details of Joseph's life because so many of us have suffered in similar ways. When we suffer unjustly, abuse, neglect, divorce, family strife, Moses is teaching us that the Lord knows. His chosen people are not exempt from suffering, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. In fact, because he cares, he includes these kinds of accounts in the Bible. He sees you in your suffering. And he is not a God who distances himself from our pain, but ultimately one who enters into the very worst kind of suffering and rejection with us and sending his own son to be stripped of his robe, to be rejected by his jealous brothers and to be thrown into a grave. See, we can trust in God's providence because he himself is no stranger to suffering. God's providence is at work in complex and profound ways in this story. We must remember that he is not only Lord of Joseph, but the brothers are also part of the chosen people. What do they do next? So let's jump back into the, the narrative in verse 25. Then they, the brothers, sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our own brother, our own flesh. 
and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? This is perhaps the very height of the brothers' cruelty and callousness. They throw Joseph into what is essentially a grave and they sit down to eat. It's not Reuben, but Judah this time, who begins to have second thoughts. He notes that they might be somewhat less guilty if they sell Joseph instead of leaving him to die. And so for 20 shekels of silver, about three years' wages for a shepherd, they sell him to a Midianite caravan going down to Egypt. Reuben, who had some kind of plan to bring Joseph back to their father, had apparently stepped away while this all happened. And he shows some sign of remorse when he comes back and he learns of all that went down. But we can't help but answer his question when he asks, where shall I go? Well, he could have gone after the traders to get Joseph back. He could have confronted his brothers about what they did. He could have gone back and told the truth to his father. You see, we are meant to be shocked by their behavior. Remember, these 11 brothers, along with Joseph, would become the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. They are our spiritual ancestors. Their malice, their contempt, are meant to serve as a mirror to show us just what our hearts are capable of. Just as our identity as God's people doesn't mean that we won't suffer, nor does our identity preclude that we ourselves won't have murderous thoughts. See, we are no better than these brothers. We may not be guilty of the same specific outward sins, but this is only because God in his providence has kept us from committing them. Not because our hearts never longed to do these kinds of things. See, the sin in our hearts should shock us. As God's people, we have all been victims of sin, but what the Lord is teaching us here is that he is also Lord of the victimizers. And see, this is really incredible. Only in Christianity, only in the Bible, are the enemies of God's people God's people. This is very different than the Quran, very different than the Upanishads the scriptures of other faiths, this is the family that God chose to be the vehicle of the covenant blessing to the entire world. These men are the seeds of the church and they are killing each other with hatred. And that won't surprise many of you. If you've been around the church for even a short period of time, you've been hurt, betrayed, backstabbed, gossiped about, rejected. And this is why we need a savior. And this is where knowing the end of the story is so helpful. The brother who is abused in the end offers forgiveness freely to his abusers. The Lord knew his people would quarrel while they waited to enter the promised land. And he is showing them that their history, he is showing them their history to remind them that God's forgiveness covers the shame of his people. So we can come out of hiding. We can make reconciliation with each other. 
Let us not waste time in doing our best to humbly repent and to confess our sins to one another. We can have the freedom to do this as a people because we have been forgiven. We can trust in God's providence because even while we were sinners against Him, He chose as part of His beautiful sovereign plan to forgive us. So how does Jacob respond? And what happens next to Joseph? Let's read the last portion of the chapter starting in verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him and Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol with my son, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So the brothers take the robe, that symbol of love which they despised, and they use it to deceive their father Jacob in an ironic twist of divine justice. You might remember that Jacob had deceived his own father with a goat and a robe, just as his sons sons do to him. The brothers can't even bear to say Joseph's name. They don't have to spell out their lie to their father Jacob. He sees the blood on the robe and he finishes the story himself. Jacob understandably goes into an intense season of mourning. His son is dead. He refuses to be consoled by the deceivers. Remember, this is the man who had the strength, the strength to overcome wrestling with an angel. And this just shows us the horror and the pain that comes with the loss of a child. Think for a moment the utter cruelty of the brothers who could have offered some relief and a glimmer of hope to their father who they knew would now die a sad man. They could have brought relief by simply telling him the truth, by confessing their sin. But the power of their sin leads them to stay silent. But there is a beautiful juxtaposition here at the end of the the chapter. In the very last verse, The Hebrew says that in the very same moment that the father weeps, Joseph is sold into the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. This offers us a glimmer of hope in the story and reminds us that the fall, that suffering, isn't the final chapter in the story that God is writing. Relief and rescue for Joseph. Relief for his brothers is hinted at here at the end of the chapter, but before Joseph can be lifted up, He must suffer many things. And this is the pattern set before us in his life and later in the life of Christ. How did Joseph maintain hope? How did he have hope standing there as a commodity in the slave market in Egypt 200 miles from his home? You see, Joseph didn't know the end of the story as we do. 
He didn't have a voice from heaven whispering encouragement to him. All he had were the promises of God. God had promised Adam that his seed would overcome the enemy. God had promised Abraham, Joseph's great-granddad, that he would bless him and make him into a great nation and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Joseph remains faithful. He's able to find relief in his suffering because he had faith that this suffering, this pain, was not the end of the story. How much more confidence can we have now today that the Lord is in control, that he will surely bring relief to the world and to all his people? Our relief is to be found in him and his promises in the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son, by faith we can find relief knowing that the Lord is in control over the coronavirus. The Lord is in control over the stock market, over the presidential race, over our mortgage. He is in control over our marriages, our relationships, over the behavior of our children. We can trust in God's providence and find relief because we know of his promises and we know the end of the story. And it concludes with a never-ending chapter, a chapter of perfect peace, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and all things new. Now, there are no easy answers to us in our pain as we sit in confusion, <clears throat> anxiety, and worry. It's only natural with all that is going on around us, and there are no easy answers to this. But the deeper that we enter into the story of Joseph, the more attuned we become to seeing that God's gracious purposes are always at work. Not only do we see that God is in control of every detail in the story, but in his providence we see how he is orchestrating every detail for good, for the good of his people, the good of his world, and the good of his plan for rescue and salvation so we can trust him. We can find peace and hope in the midst of our suffering. And the more we immerse ourselves in the story of our spiritual ancestors, the more we will have eyes to see, to recognize and appreciate what God has accomplished in Christ and what he is doing in our lives today. He has profound lessons that he wants to teach you in ways that he wants to use you that cannot be accomplished unless you pass through this storm Today, our dreams may be shattered, but only so that God can bring something more pure, something more rich out of the broken pieces. I read uh, an article recently by, by a music critic who wandered unassumingly into a jazz bar in uh, Greenwich Village in 2001. And uh, after listening to a few songs uh, by the band that, that was performing, he found himself really impressed by the trumpet player, and he thought that he recognized this man. And he, he leaned over to the guy next to him, and he asked, Is that Wynton Marsalis? And the neighbor snapped back, I very seriously doubt that. But after a few more songs, it became clear to everyone in the house that it was indeed Marsalis one of the most accomplished modern jazz musicians. And they were all shocked by this unexpected treat. And the critic, he started to scribble some notes down as Marsalis continued to play. 
And he reached the climax of <clears throat> the climax solo of the ballad, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And the room was silent until the most dramatic point of the solo when someone's cell phone went off. The critic scrawled down just two words in his notepad, magic ruined. But frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed that silly cell phone melody note for note, and then he repeated it, and he began improvising variations on the tune. And in a few minutes, changing keys back and forth along the way, he ended up exactly where he had left off in his solo. The standing ovation was tremendous. This master musician was able to take the ruined magic, the dead dream, and weave it into something more memorable, more praiseworthy, and more beautiful than anyone ever expected. How much more can the Heavenly Father do this same thing with our dreams that have been dashed? As His people, we can rest assured, we can trust Him, that He has the power and the love to take our hurt, our suffering, and to fashion it into something even more beautiful. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. We ask for help. We struggle to have hope in the midst of shattered dreams, in the midst of canceled church services, in the midst of this virus spreading more and more around us every single day. We believe that you are in control but we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. By faith, would you make us into a people who have unwavering faith and trust in your son Jesus, Jesus who is no stranger to suffering himself. Help us to know the nearness of Christ as we wait on you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.